Hello, you are listening to the Nourish Gut Podcast. This space is for the woman who is suffering from digestive issues like IBS and SIBO. I am your host, Carly Raven. I am a naturopath, clinical nutritionist, gut health expert, and mother. My mission is to help educate you about IBS and SIBO and take you on a journey to resolving your digestive issues. I will have real conversations and give you solutions that I know actually work. So if you're ready to be bloat-free, poo better, have more energy and become free from the fear of food, then you are in the right place. Hello and welcome back to the Nourish Gut Podcast. Today we are joined by a colleague and friend of mine, Carla Wren. She has been on our podcast before, so I'm very excited to be welcoming her back uh, where we're going to be discussing a completely different arena of health. And I'm very excited because it is definitely one of her biggest passions. So Carla Wren is an integrative naturopath and nutritionist. She has completed a Bachelor of Health Science in 2001 uh, and has been practicing for over 20 years. Uh, She's a passionate learner, completing a postgraduate studies in integrative oncology, autoimmune diseases, and also functional medicine within Australia and also over in America. Carla's time is spent consulting in the areas of complex and chronic diseases, uh, and most of her clinical focus at the moment is in the areas of long COVID and cancer care. Carla is also the owner of Herbal uh, Peninsula Herbal Dispensary, uh, her naturopathic clinic, where Carla works with 12 other amazing naturopaths, supporting her team, providing acute care from their clinic consultations, retail offerings, all from within Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. So a very big welcome to you, Carla. I'm absolutely so thrilled to have you back. Thank you. So today I'm excited. We're going to be talking all things cancer, but also linking that in with gut health and going to be kind of talking a little bit about, you know, what we can be doing um, from a prevention point of view, or even once you, you you may be someone who has received a diagnosis, and this is where um, Carla's zone of genius most definitely is, is once you have that diagnosis, she's always been the practitioner that I've referred to. If anyone emails me or says something or a friend or a family member in my life gets diagnosed, it's always who I send people to. She's just absolutely amazing. So I know that you are all going to get so much out of today. But before we dive into the nitty gritties, Mm -hmm. Carla, can you just let us know a little bit about why you have this passion for cancer care and a little bit of the background because I know you've done a lot. (laughs) You've spent a lot of years researching um, cancer and there's a lot of it involved in, in cancer care and it takes bravery to be a naturopath you know, working within the space of um, cancer. So, yeah, can you share some more with us about that? thank you. So it all came about because I had my kids and I stayed at home as a stay-at-home mummy for four years not working and I was like, I've forgotten everything. And I'd already been a naturopath at that stage for probably about uh, 10 years, so I maybe a bit less. And I was thinking, oh, I've forgotten everything. And things change, you know, over four years. You can imagine even in microbiome how much has changed in four years. So I thought I'll just focus on one area. And for whatever reason, I think the reason was actually I attended a metagenics conference about integrative oncology. 
And I was just blown away by the amount of research that actually was in how we could help these people. And we were still in that time, in that kind of 2008 uh, period, there was still a lot of issue around um, evidence base for us as practitioners. And so here I was seeing evidence base of how we could help these oncology patients and knowing that this was being done overseas and not available for our patients in Australia. And uh, my mum did suffer from actually colorectal cancer. Um, we have a family history. And so even though her journey had been relatively simple, she had just had surgery um, and some pretty significant dietary change, changes had made a big difference for her too. We were still like looking for what else we could do. So it was kind of a bit of a natural progression to go, well, there's actually evidence on what we can do. Um, and so I just dived in, which is kind of funny looking back at it now. But um, I am always just so passionate about it because I feel like you just make such a difference to the patient's lives. And, I, you know, yes, it's sad if a patient passes away, um, of course, very sad. But I feel like the, the impact we have on their journey is so great that the sadness that we feel in that time is never outweighing the contribution we made to their lives, but also the lives of their families. Uh, and so we just keep going. And there's just so much exciting research that I just keep learning more and more and more. So mm -hmm. I love it. I think it's probably one of those fields like the gut microbiome that will just continue to evolve. Um, and so, yeah, I can only imagine what some of your uh, nights look like, heavy in some <laughs> literature. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so before we kind of jump into all talking about the gut microbiome and gut health and, and, and um, colorectal cancer and stuff like that, yes. is there anything you wanted to kind of share that sets the scene um, before we go there um, yes. in terms of, yeah, colorectal cancer and cancer treatment or I know you've got mini gems um, yes. there. There might be something you'd like to say beforehand. Yeah, so I think the, the key thing, there's kind of three um, to four factors that I think about with every oncology patient. And the majority of my patients do come already with a diagnosis. And really the areas that I think we can offer um, research-based interventions, so really staying in our um, evidence-based lane uh, is to provide uh, side effect reduction, to provide dietary and lifestyle strategies, because there's just a, a huge amount of research around that. Um, and obviously that taps into the microbiome then too. Um, to look at comorbidity. So if someone comes and they've already got, um, whether or not it's colorectal cancer, if they've already got gut-based symptoms, then we need to look at addressing those because no doubt if they undergo any treatment, they're going to get worse anyway. Um, and then we look at what's called the chemo preventatives and Chemo preventatives are basically what other countries would call anti-cancer therapies, um, but really it's quite research-based now in terms of um, there's a whole concept called the hallmarks of cancer, which are the things that drive cancer, and we're going to try and address those. So some of them are things like inflammation, and the microbiome fits under some of these categories. And so from a research-based perspective, we assess the patient, what's their weaknesses, and start to address them there and meet them there. Everyone has different needs and sometimes it'll be a colorectal cancer patient who comes because they've just got persistent diarrhea or they don't know what to do with their diet. And sometimes it will be patients, you know, I've had patients who've had uh, anal cancer and the radiotherapy uh, regime is very grueling. So they just come for pain management, you know, so it really depends on the patient and we just try and meet them where they're at. 
Mm, yeah, I guess it's like everything else that we do as naturopaths and it was just treating the individual and the main mm. things that, you know, are coming up for that person. And, and sometimes it's not just the symptoms. It could be something as, you know, simple as providing hope, um, you know, totally. and, um, support and caring, you know, that I know as naturopaths, that's something that we are so passionate about is just supporting and providing care and listening um, to mm. those patients. So um, let's, I want to talk about um, there's been like this trend happening in my practice at the moment and also with um, naturopaths that I've been mentoring and, you know, we've had uh, lots of, we use metagenomic shotgun testing in yeah. our clinic um, and we were having a little chat before we jumped on and, and press record today um, and we were kind of talking about um, how, you know, I'm clearly seeing from some uh, gut microbiome results. This I just have this feeling when I look at it, and I'm like, something's not right here. You know, there's lots of red flags or pathogens that are out of range, species in the gut that are out of range. There might be lots of metabolites that I know are really pro-inflammatory, like what you're talking yes. about before, and we know that that's going to have a really bad impact on the gut lining and DNA. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, damage and things like that within the gut. Um, but I was just wanting to kind of chat to you about all of this. And I know in your practice, you've, you were sharing a couple of stories with me about, you know, some, some cases that you've seen as well. So, um, yeah, can we talk a little bit more? Yeah, go, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think one of the really interesting things when it comes to the microbiome is there is so much research about colorectal cancer on the microbiome, but we can also, from combining our current knowledge about gut health, predetermine that someone is heading in the direction of some of the red flag drivers. Mm. So things like immune dysregulation, if you can see that their um, species is pro-inflammatory, um, you can essentially, and outside what you would consider to be a normal range, you can assume that there's some kind of immune imbalance um, that's led to that perhaps. And then that has a knock-on effect of causing that chronic inflammation, like we mentioned. And so you can start to see this pattern, I'm sure, and that some of those key drivers or those hallmarks would be apparent in the early stages of the microbiome assessment you're seeing, I think, and sometimes the late stages, no doubt, but early stages as well. Mm, yeah, just um, in that conversation that you said there, one uh, practitioner I was mentoring, you know, she sent me through some results and I was like, whoa, like you need to refer this patient on really quickly. Like I can just see a lot of, and even if there isn't any colorectal cancer there right now, this patient needs to be investigated. Mm, and mm. this is what I really love about what what we do. You know, like we are so immersed in the field of gut health, but we are almost scanning for things, you know, and then potentially going on and saving someone's life purely because they might be in their 20s or 30s. They've got these markers that are already screaming at them saying, help me change aspects of, you know, the way that I live my life so that I might be able to prevent, you know, this from getting yeah, worse. avoid a diagnosis. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that they're not ending up in your office. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. essentially is what we want to be doing here totally. and it's fascinating um you know that we can the microbiome testing it can be a really big part um of that journey and picking up some oh, totally. some key things and getting some further investigations done yeah i think it will be interesting in the future how how much that plays a part in screening and assessment mm -hmm. and 
and all of those things. And I think you're probably just at the cutting edge of that and seeing how that could be a, a useful tool. Mm. So some of the things that like I've seen in my practice are things like short chain fatty acid production and, and in particular um, butyrate and making sure, and you know, this is something that we can, you know, really effectively change simply by eating the right foods for our microbiome yes. and our gut. Yes. Um, and then there's even things like, so that's something that would decrease the risk totally. of cancer. And then you've got on the flip side of that, an increase in cancer risk by certain pathogens. And one of them that I want to talk about, which I see really commonly is E. coli. Um, yes. And often that's contracted by food poisoning mm. you know, or eating, you know, it comes from the environment external to us um, and it's something we don't want in our gut. And you may as well, Carla, it comes through our clinic a lot in testing. You know, yeah. E. is yeah. picked up a lot. So, um, you know, and that's also when we have these pathogens, they're producing metabolites that then cause that inflammation. Inflammation, yes. And yeah. the DNA damage is that is this all like yes. and perhaps, yeah totally and perhaps even then detoxification issues and uh, like even if you just drill down on fiber for a moment and go well that's a key part of detoxification and if we're not getting that fiber not only is it changes to butyrate levels but also potentially changes to the ability to detoxify and if we step away from colorectal cancer for a moment and think about breast cancer even though our focus and your practitioner's focus is on the gut microbiome we know that if we've got those issues with not enough fiber and not enough detoxification, the potential impact on estrogen and the um, estrobolome is huge. And so colorectal cancer um, and the microbiome is going to, over time, I think, have more and more to do with all cancer types, um, mm-hmm. as well as that specific kind of changes that we could perhaps create for someone if we cleared up or rebalance their microbiome. Do you think that that's primarily kind of created through the systemic um, inflammation that could be caused like from the gut, like because obviously, you know, the inflammation can be localised to gut, but then we can also get that, the leaky gut into the blood and then that, uh, you know, that systemic inflammation. Do you see that or know much about, you know, that being linked to what you were just talking about in terms of other types of cancers or? Yeah, I definitely think that um, like with any health problem, and I think, you know, cancer and, and the big C, it always seems scary to people, um, not only sufferers, but also people who are, you know, thinking about, okay, would I step into this space? And the thing is, you know, if you think about your question and autoimmunity or your question and, you know, hormone regulation issues, they all really have a lot to do with the gut. Like, of course, it's the center of everything. So I think um, the gut's impact on metabolic factors and blood glucose and all of those things, it all filters down to that same problem. And I guess that's one of the challenging things that we face when we work in oncology and we're trying to personalize care is which is the most inflammatory driver. Mm. And I guess you're looking for hints. If someone came um, with or without colorectal cancer and they talked about a history of bowel problems, then I would 100% be thinking, red flag, we need to sort this out now. Whether it's me that sorts it out or more commonly I would refer out for some additional testing like you're talking about your microbiome testing so that um, I can then use that to draw in on one of the strategies I'm going to use to reduce inflammation. And, of course, it's exactly the same as if that is sedentary lifestyle. I'm going to refer to an exercise physiologist just for someone else that can help with that area of inflammation and perhaps getting them moving. So I think um, it's a tool in all the tools that we have to use with these patients. Mm, Absolutely. Um, 
I was going to ask you about, can you share with us what you were sharing with me before about um, a couple of patients that, you know, came to you perhaps a little bit mismanaged um, and you had some findings in your clinic? Yeah, so I think um, both of, I still see, um, you know, normal patients as well with the general uh, range of issues. And they're usually ones that I've been looking after for a long time. And so, you know, being in practice for so long, you have a relationship that's probably more um, structured with patients in the beginning, but then down the track, you might see them every so often and or they might go off and do other things or live in other places. And two patients I had virtually had, um, you know, moved out of the area and wanted to see practitioners face-to-face and had sadly had what I would deem red flags, but at the same time, I don't think any practitioner did anything wrong. I think it was almost in the patient's explaining of the severity of their symptoms. Um, And both of them ended up having colorectal cancer diagnosis. And they were both young, 42, and uh, the other lady was in her 30s, so young women. Mm. Um, And the first one who was 42, she had had constipation issues, but certainly not you know, terribly progressive. But um, by the time she came to my clinic, um, and look, I did, you know, did the same thing, give her some general support. But I was thinking, you know, the things that other people have done for her, other practitioners she's seen, should have cleared this up. So I guess just watching for those red flags. So she had colorectal cancer with her bowels completely obstructed. Uh, The other younger patient um, had had some other red flags around, um, you know, just bowel habits and the fact that things weren't resolving as I would expect. And it just was a really good reminder for me that you don't want to look everywhere and and look for cancer, but I think keep it in the back of your mind because as we were saying, um, the feeling of being stressed about cancer and, you know, does your patient have cancer is not a nice feeling, but the feeling of missing something in in any way is also a terrible feeling. So ensuring that we can just have that in the back of the mind somewhere as, you know, if this picture looks a bit funny, go with your gut. You know, if the, if the feeling looks not right, mm. get it checked, whether it be have a mentoring session with you or, or ask another gut health colleague or refer on to get it assessed um, as a minimum so that it's just not missed because these things, um, you know, are harder to fix the more progressed they are. And I think it's also a really great reminder to the listeners who are suffering from what might just be or what you have labelled yourself with as just a bit of IBS or constipation, you know, and like it's not uncommon for people to come through our clinic saying, oh, yeah, I've had this for 10 years, mm. um, you know, and then when we do that microbiome testing that I was talking about earlier and we can discover these markers and go, how long has this patient had no butyrate, these pathogenic, you know, things hanging out in there, these really high metabolites, plus they've got the constipation and it's kind of like that symptom mixed with what we typically don't know when we haven't tested that makes you go, okay, this is like we need to take some more steps here. And I think it's taking those blinkers off and thinking, oh, this is an IBS patient. And and that's what happened with that younger woman. It was she came looking for food intolerance testing because the support she'd been getting elsewhere hadn't resolved her constipation issue. So she knew that we did some food intolerance testing. And so she came looking for that. Mm. And you know, that was just to me, it should have, it, it wasn't the issue. You could just, I don't know, feel it wasn't the issue. And so I think it's important to make sure you follow through with those things and take those blinkers off because yeah. it's not helpful if we, if we, you know, say we're personalizing, but then we put them in the pigeonhole of whatever complaint that they're presenting with. 
yeah and to just also seek help like you know Mm. don't get comfortable with what you think is normal like if your health changes and you all of a sudden start getting some constipation or really fatigued or something like that like just seek another opinion and definitely uh, by a naturopath as well you know like yes mm. you might like to do that medically but um I would do both in my opinion um yes. you know just yeah seek all avenues and um I think as Carla was saying it's a really nice reminder to sometimes feeling a little bit scared or cautious um, can be a really great motivator to prevent something that we definitely don't want like having cancer and it being more at the end stage rather than getting yeah. it early. I think it's just getting things, if it doesn't feel right, get it checked. And I know the system is a bit challenging. We have a lot of people that come in at the moment and they haven't been able to access the support that they perhaps hoped from their GP or their complaint wasn't taken seriously, which is where I think this young age group issue is. So I think naturopaths are perfectly placed to fit in that um, because we do have the skills to go, okay, we need to write that letter to the GP or progress this um, if we can sense it's not right too. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So let's dive in. I want to ask you about is there anything um, in particular, it probably maybe something more recent that you've looked at that could be kind of like a therapeutic or something that you're using um, with your patients, you know, in the, in the world of cancer? And um, is there anything yet that you'd like to share about, you know, something recent that you've learned? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, look, I've just come back off, off the back of a great conference. So I even just, uh, I have my brain is full of new learnings, but I, I look, I think there's just I mean. so many options. <laughs> yeah. So many options that we can use for patients. And that's what I love about what we do. Um, whether it just be starting with dietary interventions, you know, we um, always have to think in cancer and colorectal cancer, if someone is undergoing um, treatment, then what we're going to be able to do in that space can be a real challenge, especially if the oncologist or other parts of the care team are not on board with our suggestions. So um, no one ever cares what we do with our patient's diet. So as long as we can maintain their weight, you know, it's a great place to even just start, like you recommend, introducing those 40 plant foods a week. And I talk to my patients continuously, and this was definitely brought up at the recent training that I did, that just getting um, that diversity into the diet um, cannot be underestimated. And we also had lots of conversations about um, cost. And I'm sure you would find with yourself and your practice and your practitioners that the cost of um, therapies continue to rise. Uh, The supplements are getting more more expensive, I guess, as so many things are in life. And when we try to find balanced solutions for our patients that aren't too costly, you know, tapping into what we can do in the diet is obviously a great initiative for everyone. And so um, that diversity is one thing. I think the changes in And the progression in the space of probiotics is really interesting and looking at how we can use probiotics for our patients um, preventatively is something I'm sure you think about. But I also think about when can I get those probiotics in to get those amazing benefits on the microbiome and the gut and the downstream effects on inflammation and immune regulation. And it is a little bit challenging in um, cancer treatment of how we do that, because if anything they're taking, you know, whether it be chemotherapy or immunotherapy is affecting their um, white blood cell count, then we have to be really careful we don't cause um, an infection. There has been some sepsis issues and um, other such things. So we, you know, we have to find the right You're timing. referring to there like when, like the co-administration of probiotics exactly. and the risk there, aren't you? I know we've had conversations about this, um, yeah. this podcast, but I just wanted to clarify that for the listener. Yeah. That, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. It's just making sure that um, it's the right time to use it. And we, we call it pulse dosing. So we might um, know when the white cell count is typically going to be affected in that patient um, But once and, and use it outside that space. But once treatment is um, finished or if there's a big gap in treatment, you know, definitely we would be looking for that. And even looking at things like what's happening with blood glucose and, um, you know, detoxification status overall, what is their liver doing? How's that contributing to the microbiome? Uh, so really just trying to paint a whole whole picture and more and more suggestions and initiatives come out, but we still also rely on the typical things that other practitioners would use as well. And is it the same for prebiotics as probiotics um, or are you a little bit more adventurous with um, using prebiotics with your um, oncology patients? totally more adventurous because I feel it, it to me it almost falls in the a dietary category yeah um look I think if there's no evidence that we are doing any harm it's great to step into that space and in prebiotics um it's definitely a space where we can go confidently um add things to the diet or bring in different prebiotics that are going to um not just help with outcomes but also help to reduce their side effects you know when patients have got a uh, really problematic stool formation whether it be that the stools are really loose and urgent or whether it be constipation prebiotics would be one of the things that I'd be thinking of to use to support um, the bowel function and motility and and um, do that instead of using some of the more aggressive herbs that might not be appropriate at that time. So, yeah, I think there's a lot that we can do for this patient group. Mm, so we've talked a little bit about um, diet and food mm. diversity, which I am I think every episode on the Nourish Gut podcast, <laughs> this comes up and I just it just seems like it's my life mission is to just yeah. like get people eating more food. And even with the SIBO food roadmap that I created, that was yes. the reason why I did all of that. So um, I love that even in all of my interviews, it just, it always comes up. So it's, you know, everyone will have it yes. <laughs> well and truly at the forefront of their mind every time. It's really interesting. And maybe um, you might like this too, that um, it's often researched under the term prudent diet. So the prudent diet is in a funny word, but is what they kind of research that whole food plant-based, um, diverse plant-based rainbow kind of eating in oncology. And it definitely shows evidence in I would say all cancer types or just about all cancer types, but of course, especially um, digestive cancers and colorectal cancer specifically. Mm, so interesting. I feel like it's just such a big world, you know, <laughs> where there's just so much to unpack. Hello, this is just a quick break from today's episode because I have a game changer for all healthcare practitioners out there and it's my SIBO food roadmap and practitioner training. Elevate your practice with this comprehensive program designed exclusively for practitioners passionate like you, aiming to make a profound effect on your clients' lives through their diet and successful IBS and SIBO treatment. Unlock the power of my dietary therapy, the six-age system, guiding your clients through their SIBO treatment journey. Say goodbye to confusion. This roadmap provides clear dietary protocols, ensuring optimal results and long-term relief. Gain access to the full training, invaluable resources, a detailed guide, a recipe book with over 70 plus detailed SIBO-friendly recipes and four weeks worth of meal plans, making the SIBO food roadmap a breeze for both you and your clients. 
you're going to dive into exclusive video tutorials led by myself offering insights research-based knowledge and practical strategies for exceptional results become a certified practitioner with prescribing rights empowering you to guide your clients confidently and guess what as an affiliate your prescription of the SIBO food roadmap will see you earn a generous 20% commission with each referral enrollment and that's a win-win Elevate your practice and make a lasting impact on your clients' lives. Sign up now using the code ROADMAP100, all in capitals, for a $100 discount. Head to our show note link now. Revolutionize your practice with the SIBO Food Roadmap and Practitioner Training. So we know diversity is really important. We know that um, we can be using certain probiotics, but we have to be, you know, cautious. And this is where working with a trained um, oncology naturopath is going to be really beneficial um, for anyone who's currently, you know, going through that um, because people generally think that they're safe, right? Like probiotics yes. are like, and that's a really timely uh, reminder for everyone just because it's natural or it's um, a probiotic doesn't mean that we, you, you can use it for every single thing. Um, and then we talked about prebiotics and how um, we can be a little bit more, you know, not as reserved, I suppose, with yeah. using those. Is there anything else that we should be cautious about um, that you'd like to share or maybe something that's like, yeah, like a top recommendation, I suppose. Yeah, look, I think turmeric fits into both of those categories. Um, the hallmarks of cancer, which are these drivers that are considered to be in all cancer types, um, were first developed to try and find uh, combinations of uh, standard oncology chemotherapies or immunotherapies or other drug combinations that could be used to target all of the drivers for a, a patient. And what they found is it was too toxic to target all of these drivers because you'd need too many drug combinations. And what the research shows in some really amazing papers is that turmeric targets all of those uh, hallmarks of cancer, which is pretty mind-blowing when we can't find drug combinations that would be um, safe to do and yet we have turmeric here. But um, as much as we love it, and I would say many, many patients come already on it to my practice, it's like, you know, the neighbor said take turmeric or the person in the health food store said take turmeric or you've started putting it into your smoothies in high dose. Um, it's all well and good, but it's a key interactor with some very common first-line chemotherapies that people are prescribed. So again, it's not to be fearful of them. It's just to get advice because um, we want to use them and we want to make use of all that beautiful evidence and the way they really can change outcomes, but we certainly don't want to then affect the quality of the standard care that we're having. Uh, and so just um, checking those things um, with the um, you know an, an oncology-trained practitioner or someone that's got skills in um, um, assessing the combinations of natural medicines and pharmaceuticals, even a pharmacist would be a good way to go. Uh, and so we just want to make sure that the things we take aren't causing interactions. And that can reach right down to things like green tea and some of the antioxidants as well, which we have to be careful of. But essentially, you know, it's um, exciting to think of the things that we can use positively to make a difference. We just have to keep in the back of our minds always um, that there could be some interactions that we need to watch out for. And especially because things are so accessible, right? Mm, um, yes. And you may also not fully know what's going on. Like you may not have that diagnosis yet and you think that you're doing all well and good at a health food store and, you know, being really proactive for your health, but there could be something there that wasn't quite right and takes you down another path of, yeah, where you don't really want to go. So I think really. 
as, as tempting as it is to kind of go out there and buy all the things and, you know, we're big advocates for, you know, eating the right foods and adding things in. But, yeah, we just there's also a big caution there. And I think listening to you today, it really um, brings home. I remember the first time you told me about probiotics and cancer care. I was like, I had no idea. And if I didn't, as a fully trained naturopath, then there are so many people walking around out there taking probiotics and potentially having, you know, they've got cancer and they don't realize that's not a good combination. Exactly. And just choosing the right strains, like the biggest concern is Saccharomyces boulardii. There has been some cases of sepsis from patients touching their probiotic capsule and then touching their um, port and um, the port goes straight into the um, bloodstream. So, you know, you can get some SB in there if you're really, you know, not careful. And so it's just being cautious of these things. And it's never about not taking things. It's always just about, um, you know, learning the right way to take them. And sometimes it's just like pulsing these things, as I mentioned. So yeah, it's not to be scared of, but certainly worthwhile considering to get the best outcomes. Yeah. And so is turmeric kind of like one of your favorite go-to herbs? Um, I was going to ask you about ginger as well. I'm a bit obsessed with ginger in my practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Turmeric and ginger would definitely be up there. I haven't, there's not as much research on ginger as there is in turmeric in that anti-inflammatory space, and, but it definitely would come in a lot um, into prescriptions because of nausea and just about every patient who has some kind of gastric cancer might have an experience of nausea, um, especially if their transit time slow. You tend to notice that the chemotherapy moves through slower and they get worse nausea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ginger is one of the strategies that we can use. Um, so definitely I love it for that, but it's, I fun choosing the supplements is like choosing your favorite child but I would say that I also love the medicinal mushrooms which I'm caught co- I'm sure mm-hmm. you know have a huge impact on the microbiome as well so um mushrooms are probably my favorite out of everything um yeah. and especially getting a whole range of mushrooms there's some really great research about diversity in the mushrooms and the huge impact that has on um, the immune system uh, and especially I love lion's mane as a new herb now um, we've got a really great supply of lion's mane some of them were previously perhaps not as good uh, and that's showing really prom- great promise on the immune system as well as turkey tail which has always been one of my favorite mushrooms Oh, there's just so many herbs to pick from as well. I love mushrooms and ginger. I'm just obsessed with it. Obviously, we see a high volume of IBS and SIBO patients. It's just one of my favorite um, herbs that I'm using in clinical practice for like uh, as a prokinetic and motility. And it's really great for just, you know, it's really good preventative, actually, you know, helps with the relapse of SIBO and things like that. And yeah, there's some really good research on it. So definitely one of my favorites. Hey, Carly, are you, um, I've got a couple more questions. Um, (laughs) Are you, uh, what percentage in your clinic um, is colorectal cancer? Just curious. Yeah, I would say that the percentages are not necessarily representative of the severity of the condition in Australia. So Mm -hmm. colorectal cancer, as um, you probably know, is quite a high incidence in Australia. It's one of our most common cancers. Um, But in my practice, I do see a lot of breast cancer. The reason being because some of the key referral um, partners I have in breast care nurses and oncologists, and also in networking that I've done with training previously 
with other health professionals means that I get an increased proportion of those patients. Um, and I love to support breast cancer patients. There is a lot we can do for them and the microbiome is still important. And also there's really great research on the being done on the breast microbiome um, oh. for breast cancer patients. I know it just makes your brain go, Whoa! and get really excited to think about this but yeah great research in that space but um i do really love to work with patients with colorectal cancer and also esophageal cancer uh, Mm. because i think we have such a special place in our ability to support their digestive system and reduce the symptoms um and as funny as it sounds there are fashionable cancers and unfashionable cancers and having esophageal cancer or anal cancer or colorectal cancer is not the same as having breast cancer you just have to look at the color of the ribbons you know the pretty pink ribbon and all the lovely things that are done to support women who are um, having a breast cancer diagnosis are very different to what's done with some of the other cancer types. Mm, And so to be able to offer solutions to people who are really having, um, you know, one of their basic enjoyments disrupted, you know, patients with gastro um, cancers will usually have trouble either swallowing food or digesting food or eliminating food. And when food is one of the things that gives us joy and that's taken away from you as well as being given a diagnosis, it's really empowering to be able to say to the patients, look, um, it's you know disappointing that you can't eat the food that way, particularly chunky food for people, like thick food for people with esophageal cancer, but can we change it and maybe cook your favourite meat recipe in the slow cooker? Or yeah. can we turn that into a soup? Or can we add more greens or fibre or prebiotics to get that to move through your bowel better? Mm-hmm. And that... Um, I don't think there's anyone else, you know, in the cancer care teams that can provide that advice like we can. So I love to support that patient group. Mm, So good. And with that patient group, so um, are you doing, do you tend to do microbiome testing in all of them? Is that kind of like a standard thing that you do or um, and it's, there's no right or wrong answer here? Yeah, yeah <laughs> no. So yes, definitely. I, I would say that um, more and more. So a paper came out called um, Gut and the Microbiome or Colorectal Cancer and the Microbiome. And I really love um, this paper. And when it came out, it just was a real reinforcement to me um, exactly how important it was to do this testing. And, you know, patients come and essentially they're looking for help with side effects. Most commonly, they come because they're fatigued, um, but they also become, become because they want to be cured essentially. And while we can never promise to cure anything, that's not what we're aiming to do. We want to improve health experience, um, the amount of time that they're healthy for, um, as well as their longevity. And so when we can think about something like a whole bonus tool we've got that our disposal, patients are that excited. And I think the general understanding of the microbiome is growing. So as soon as you say to the colorectal patient, have you thought about what your microbiome is doing? Their brain just goes, whoa. Oh, and they're like, I mean, I need to know everything. Yeah, it's um, almost because- empowering to them, isn't it, to kind of see. Um, I would say by that stage, obviously I've not um, had cancer, but I think if that was me sitting in that position and I could actually have some data given to me that, you know, could show from research, like we do know that there are some things, um, you know, that have, and potentially, you know, you may not have uh, direct things that you can change from that for every single marker, but it, to me also would provide an answer as to why they mm. would also be getting to that that stage um, totally. as well. And everyone wants to know why. Like they may not necessarily mm. say, but they do want to know, like it's a yeah. big question, why did this happen to me? Mm. And so um, you can talk about contributing factors and the microbiome is obviously a contributing factor. And so if we can um, provide solutions and then so 
Um, for me, I feel like the movement in microbiome and the learning um, is as intense as what I have to maintain or I feel committed to maintain for my oncology patients. So rather than doing the testing now, I have purely been referring out to um, colleagues in my practice who run that portion of the testing um, yeah. and help me come up with a plan, almost like an adjunctive plan to what I'm providing to ensure that we address the risks going forward. As you mentioned, there are some species that you want to not have there and there's some species that you want to add in there um, and I feel like it's almost moved outside my scope of practice to be able to authentically give the most up-to-date information so I'm always looking to refer to get that test done just like oncologists would refer for their PET scans to be done by a you know a, a trained professional I feel like it's something that's got so much value it's worthwhile bringing someone else onto the care team for. Yeah, awesome. I love it. I love your work. Doing amazing things. Um, And before we go, I have one final question and maybe you'll have something else to share as well. So just hang in there a little bit. I just don't want to let go of your brain for (laughs) a little bit. Now I forgot what I was going to ask. Let me rewind for a second. Okay. Yes, I've got it. So when you've done that testing um, and then maybe your or your colleague, I know you just said then that you refer within your specific clinic and they're doing a lot of that um, treatment, but are there phases where they can and can't use? Because I know obviously if there's a lot of gut-based stuff going on, probiotics, um, diet, prebiotics, even herbs, like I'm thinking like if you do find these like full-on pathogens that, you know, may need herbs like a berberine or something like that. Are there phases where once someone's being diagnosed that you can safely go, okay, now we're going to move into this part of it? Or do you kind of have to steer clear from a lot of that um, pathogen treatment, probiotic use in these patients for quite some time? Um, no, good question. There is a there is a clear pattern. Everyone has like a treatment timeline and so it's just finding where you fit in a treatment timeline. So an example for colorectal cancer is, is usually that they have a diagnosis probably through a um, colonoscopy and biopsy. Uh, and then depending on the severity, um, decisions will be made then about what surgery would be appropriate or if treatment with chemotherapy or radiotherapy is needed first. And usually there are periods of time between that, especially if they're in a state where it's quite busy and hard to access the care or they're not in a system where they can immediately access um, um, surgery. And so we can fit in those windows. And it may be that you are continually working on the microbiome on and off throughout the treatment. But generally, if someone's undergoing an intense treatment, I feel like gut work can be intense as well, especially if you're really trying to make significant changes to the microbiome. And I almost encourage people to wait until after their chemotherapy and radiotherapy is finished, then go and do your microbiome testing because you almost see such a change in the microbiome. We know there's a huge change in the microbiome that happens in that time. And rather than testing too early, um, it can be good to test late. I definitely wouldn't test during treatment and I go cautiously with the herbs. In saying that, berberine that you love for but I love for its oncology benefit. It's a chemo preventative research to improve outcomes as far as the balance in blood sugar levels mm-hmm. um, and its metabolic effect on cancer. So, you know, sometimes you can get those um, double prescriptions, which yeah. I love, um, yeah. but really it is um, finding the right window. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone's on a watch and wait protocol, you know, they've got unusual polyps or a family history or, you know, they're just in that 
pre-cancer stage, our early cancer, low-level cancer stage, um, it would be a perfect time to come in and just try and make significant changes before everything gets started. Mm, so good. Well, that is so enlightening. Um, and just quickly, have you seen much in terms of the link between um, colorectal cancer and SIBO? Obviously, I can go and dive into that world further, yeah. but I was just wondering if there's much, because I know that you're quite immersed in that field, yeah. um, that you've personally come across. Um, yeah, look, I think it's the changes to the microbiome and some of the specific species that we're seeing is like the first phase of that understanding of the microbiome. And I suspect SIBO will get more and more press um, over time or more and more um published data over time but I think we're still at that stage where there's more to come mm. and it's always the way in my world <laughs> yes you're yeah you're cutting I'm patiently it. waiting cutting for it. data yes. and, <laughs> and I think you have to th remember that all of this research is done for two reasons this is a bit of a generalization but but go with it it's done because it wants to improve the outcome of the patient which is great or it's done for financial gain so a lot of research in cancer is done because there's big money in the sale of chemotherapy and so um i feel like the sibo research is probably somewhere towards the bottom of the pile of the research and but it's being done and like in the paper that i mentioned about colorectal cancer and the microbiome and there's another one about um i think it's called uh, gut microbiome and its role in colorectal cancer like like these are all really new papers. So um, I think more and more will come. And another area where more and more will come is we know that if people have a great microbiome, the way they metabolize and the benefit they get from their chemotherapy is far greater than if their microbiome is, you know, problematic from the beginning and so so much so that, yes so much so that some people's microbiomes are so damaged that they believe that the chemo doesn't have the same response that they wow. would expect because they're not getting the full metabolism in the drug in the way that they would expect which yeah. is just mind-blowing so who knows maybe in the future they'll be testing gut microbiome as a way of um determining these species are a are a, a trigger or a red flag just like they do with pap smears and using it to screen you know patients mm -hmm. And then and predict their risk. And then, you know, maybe they'll also be using it to help um, improve the outcomes of standard treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And what a way to kind of finalize, you know, and wrap up the podcast with such an empowering and motivating thing. You know, if we can just simply get in there, you know, diversify our diet do a gut microbiome check. You just never know how you're going to improve your life. And then, you know, if you do even end up with a diagnosis of cancer, then, you know, if you get your microbiome, you know, in shape now, and this starts right from like a baby being born. Totally. I just remind everyone too, like this isn't just like, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight. Like this is a life exposure. And so no matter where you are, no matter age, what age you are, we can improve our microbiome, you know, even by just choosing to move from the city to a rural town or on a farm can over a month, two months change your microbiome. So yeah. I just kind of want to really say to you guys, go out there, <laughs> eat the right food, you know, take that step in getting a few little tests done so that you can get some more information, um, travel, 
get dirty. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like totally. all little pillars that we can do. And and buying your your food from the market and all of those things. It just means yeah, your your it's like an insurance policy and uh, for prevention of all cancer types. I just think we're on the cutting edge of understanding that. But you've got nothing to lose by doing it because there's so many benefits, isn't there? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Before you do go, is there anything else you wanted to say or enlighten us with? No, I can't think of anything. I've always got something um, exciting to say. But right now, I don't know. I just think, you know, it, it's it's exciting times. And I think the more this testing is available and um, the more you invest perhaps into your health in the beginning, the more we can see better outcomes down the track. When, when God forbid, patients get to my um, clinic room, there is nothing worse than if they've never thought about their health because mm-hmm. I am trying to teach them, um, you know, we probably don't want to have Coke every day and we don't, you know, we need to do a bit of um, you know, exercise or sleep well, or, or, you know, so the more you can do for your health, the better outcomes we also see down the track. Mm, absolutely. So if you're someone who would like to work with Carla, all of her information uh, can be found in the show notes. And after today's episode, if doing a microbiome test is something that you would love to do, um, it is something that we do at our clinic um, and we have packages uh, with consultations as well. So you can reach out to us. All of the information will be in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Carla, for joining us. I just feel like we could sit here forever and keep chatting (laughs) um and yeah thank you for sharing your knowledge and your time with us thank you uh and as always if you could like subscribe and review the podcast that we can keep bringing you amazing episodes just like today that would be wonderful i'll see you on the next episode bye guys did you like what you heard leave us a review if you'd like to learn more about my nourish gut program or the nourish gut kids membership head over to my website. Would you like to be a part of a community that gets it? Join our Facebook group, Nourish Gut Community, or come and follow me over on Instagram. All of these links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time on the Nourish Gut Podcast.